and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm John, your host, and with me is the author of The North Sea Water in My Veins, Imelda Ongfist. And I'm really excited to have her with me today or on this episode because, uh, well, we'll learn more later because it's very personal and I'm very excited about this. Imelda is an international teacher of sacred art and save Old Norse traditions. So far, she has written four nonfiction books and three picture books for children. The Green Bear is a series of picture books for children aged three to eight years. The stories and vibrant artwork are set in Scandinavia. They invite children to explore enchanting parallel worlds and to keep her sense of magic alive as they grow up. In this episode, we'll talk about the North Sea Water in My Veins, the pre-Christian spirituality of the Low Countries, which looks at pre-Christian Netherlands, Belgium, and surrounding areas for practices and traditions to work with today. Imelda, welcome. Thank you for having me, John. It's a delight to finally be here. <laughs> yes, well, it's it's a bit of a journey, isn't it, for us to to be able to do this here? And we're re- we're recording this in late November after uh, being introduced to you. Was it in May at the MoonCon? Uh, I think it was August? June, if memory serves. June. Okay. Yes. It's funny because uh, I just saw the MoonCon advertisements on my Facebook feed and I believe on Instagram and I thought oh yeah you know there's there's one or two authors that I know on from moon uh, moon books uh, and I thought okay what's uh, I'll, I'll check out those authors and you weren't one of them I hadn't heard of you before <laughs> and uh, it just so happened that I I clicked into the to the online conference and you were there and so I thought oh let me let me listen to this and all of a sudden, I heard your I heard your your voice, and so I recognized the the accent right away. I'm like, oh, she's Dutch. Oh my gosh, I've got to <laughs> listen to her. <laughs> and uh, and then I've uh, that's how I discovered the book North Sea Water in My Veins, and I got very very interested in it. And I and I I think I had ordered it before your presentation was over. <laughs> so, oh wow! Yes. <laughs> I couldn't wait. And the reason is uh, because uh, my heritage is from the Netherlands. My mother is from Rotterdam, uh, which is in the south. And I'm very closely uh, uh, interested in my heritage and in the, the Dutch culture because I still have family there. I visit there quite often. And the more I learned about the Netherlands as I spent time over there as a young younger person, a young adult, uh, and the more I realize, oh my gosh, that's why I say things this way. That's why I do this. That's what that tradition is. Because I just grew up with those types of things in our house. And they seem normal to me, even though when I was in the military or when I've met other people, um, they think, that's kind of weird. Why do you put <laughs> sprinkles on your bread and have it for breakfast? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes. So, uh so this uh, became very an interest for me uh, because it's a very unique book in the book Wild. I don't think there's any books, especially in English. Uh, there may be in the Netherlands that I'm not aware of, but I haven't really seen a lot of books in the Wild about uh, spiritual pre non-Christian or pre-Christian spirituality in the Low Countries or the Netherlands about uh, Benelux area. So anyway. Yes, and, and a little part of Germany, like, the, the you know, the, the book also covers the area just across the German border, just in, adding that to the Benelux. It's very interesting to find how much the culture is there, especially along the border, right? It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, we have a nice uh, introduction in the book, but for our listeners, um, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, because you're obviously from the Netherlands, but uh, you don't live there permanently now. And um, how, what is your journey to your spiritual practice and eventually to this book? Okay, well, I'll try and keep that That's short. That's a lot of questions, I know, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm indeed from the Netherlands. Um, you know, I grew up there, went to school there, grew up in a Roman Catholic family. Um, then I was, When I was 19 years old, I met the man who was then my boyfriend and has since become my husband and the father of my three children, and he is Swedish. So he introduced me to Scandinavia. So after finishing art school in Amsterdam, I left, in, I left the Netherlands, I moved to Stockholm in Sweden, and then together my husband and I moved to London, UK, where we still spend uh, most of the year. Though I do have a forest school in Sweden where I teach courses, and I spend a lot of time in Sweden, but our children have grown up in the UK. So my children think, think of themselves as British, which is very strange to me until today. <laughs> So what can I say? Um, you know, I'm Dutch. Um, I'm a painter. I teach art. I write books. Uh, I'm in love with Scandinavia. And also with the far north, I just spent um, a month in Greenland painting, actually. So I'm just back from Greenland. So I love Greenland as well. I know it's outside the scope of our conversation, but that's close to my heart. And... Um, yeah, very much as a Dutch person. Of course, Dutch people are known for uh, learning and speaking many languages, and I am one of those. I have a deep uh, love for language. And the reason that I came to write this book is because I'm a teacher of Seder and Old Norse traditions. And um, I have students from the Netherlands who would fly into courses in either Scandinavia or London. And the students at some point said, you know, we love all the Norse and Scandinavian material, but there isn't really a book that bundles together everything we know about the pre-Christian spirituality of the Netherlands. And it's very fragmented and it's very hard to find it and to do research. So several Dutch students sort of said that, you know, would you even consider writing a book about the Netherlands? You know, you speak many languages, you're, you seem to be quite good at doing research. And at first, when that was said, I said, yeah, 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 maybe one day. And I thought, you know, what would I do that for? I left the Netherlands 35 years ago. And then the request came again. And I thought, well, maybe it's something I should at least look into. And this was one summer. So I went on my summer break. And I thought, well, I'm not going to commit to this, but let's just do a little bit of research. So I started like running searches and I started ordering some books. They were all delivered to my mother in the Netherlands. Can also easily ship books from the Netherlands to other places. So I had to go visit my mother, collect a big pile of books in Dutch. (laughs) And uh, I was hooked. It was like, oh, my goodness. You know, like you were saying, uh, and I know for you that, you know, happened in the United States, but even growing up in the Netherlands, like we do certain things, we have festivals, we have traditions, but no one remembers why things are done that way, you know, why our ancestors started doing that. And as I started digging into the material, my whole world turned upside down. It was like, you know, oh, so this is completely different from what I thought. There is a whole other story there. And also as a teacher of the Nordic Scandinavian material, being fluent in Scandinavian languages, uh, you know, also started seeing the links, seeing, well, okay, I mean, I know what the spirituality of Scandinavia is because I teach that, but there is this whole, you know, like further south and further west 
there is this whole sort of other zone where kind of similar things happened that also had a very, very individual and unique flavor. And there really is such a thing as the pre-Christian spirituality of the Netherlands. And it's distinct. And it's that you could say it's sort of wedged between Scandinavia and then, of course, we have England and the UK. And I'm talking to you from London, UK today. Uh, you know, sort of wedged between that. It sits between. But it both, you know, is like connected to those other land masses, but also the spirituality of the pre-Christian Netherlands is so unique because it relates to the geography of the land and, you know, a land reclaimed from water and all of those things. So basically I got hooked. I thought now the students are right. I need to write this book. And then it was, do I write it in Dutch? But then only Dutch people are going to read it and that's a limited population. And because I teach mostly in other countries, at least like in the US uh, and, you know, other places. So I teach in English most of the time. And the students who are like asking me for information, like would not speak fluent Dutch. So if I write a book in Dutch, which I could do, most of my students and most of my audience are not going to be able to read it. So I thought, what if I just write this book in English? Most Dutch people below the age of 80 speak very good English anyway. They can read it and the rest of the world can read it. So that's what I did. Well, I'm really grateful that you did write it in in English. My Dutch, I, I am not fluent in Dutch and I'm trying to improve that all the time. Uh, growing up here in the 70s, um, they discouraged my mother from speaking Dutch to us. So... Uh, we stopped, uh, she stopped then, and so I just grew up with primary English, French, and German as options mm. for a, a, a foreign language in school and all that. But uh, I'm, I'm working on my Dutch, uh, and yes, so I'm glad that it is in English so that I can fully understand it a um, uh, little bit easier than trying to work through it and retranslate it myself. So oh, that's great. <laughs> that would be a big job. <laughs> yes, it would. It, it definitely would. And um, what a journey, uh, what an amazing journey. Uh, I'm really excited to hear about how you found so much material because uh, when I first started on my pagan or my uh, my Germanic traditions path, I tried to find materials about other than Christianity uh, in the Netherlands. And there's just really not much because I think the Netherlands must have converted Christianity very early as a whole. And there's just not a lot written about other options. I tried to find books about gods and goddesses and practices. And I, it was just very, I, I couldn't find very much at all. So this is a real joy. <laughs> yeah. And also that's what my publisher said when I submitted the book. I thought, well, are they even going to, is Moonbooks going to be interested? Because, you know, obviously it's a kind of special interest area. But actually, my editor said, like, wow, I'm not aware of any book that begins to cover this. This really is a, you know, it's a new beginning. You're breaking new ground here. So thankfully, uh, you know, Moonbooks offered me a contract and uh, they backed it up. They got it published. I wasn't absolutely sure about it when I embarked on the project. But apparently there was a big gap in the market. So I'm pleased I did. I, I can imagine uh, how how much how much reading that must have been. How long did it take you about to with the research and every like several years or a couple of? I would say a year, all in all, and also you know I tend to. I mean, some people are tidy writers. They do all the research, make notes, and then they start a book. I'm a very uh, you know I think my son calls it a gardener writer. He's a student of creative writing and he writes. Um, and what I do is I will sort of start a chapter about like, you know, 
what I am like researching. And then I will just, you know, write the skeleton and then also leave spaces and notes in red to myself, plug this or return here when I know more. So it's kind of organic the way I write. So the book started in a more skeletal form. First was mapping what topics am I going to cover? And then there were more chapters than I thought there could ever be because I just wasn't aware I would find so much material. And then I would just, as I kept on reading, so the book was taking shape, but then another book would come to attention or I'd find another article or be talking to someone and there would be more information. And I'd just like go back into these chapters and edit in and keep on rewriting it basically until the day of publication or the day of the final edit when you submit it to the publisher and you, you can't touch it anymore and you next see it as a book. Wow. Gardener writer. I like that term. It sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A gardener writer is all organic and it sort of grows. And then my son also had an, another word, like the opposite kind of writer is um, an architect writer. I think it is someone who sort of builds the whole structure and sort of put the walls in place before they put in the furniture and the kitchen sink. I think it's architect writer and gardener writer. So oh, he says. <laughs> That's great. I'm definitely not an architect writer. <laughs> no. A lot of this will be covered in the book. And as we said off air, it's a very, it is a very dense book. And it's not one that can just be lightly read in a, a week and all absorbed. Because one of the cool things about the book is you give homework <laughs> exercises. Yes, I always do that in all my books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so that's great. And I, uh, I haven't done the homework on all of the chapters because I was trying to make sure that I got through the book before we actually could meet and and speak but it is going to be something and as I also mentioned I did not make any notes in the book with my pen but uh, the next time I go through this I definitely am because there's a lot of things that I've wanted to underline or wanted to put a star next to mm. I wanted to keep track especially um, in the wonderful list of the the indigenous deities that you have here. I wanted to like highlight what areas of the Netherlands they're from. And I found it really interesting because mostly coming from Rotterdam, I do know that I have a great grandmother uh, whose family is from Friesland. So mm-hmm. I do have a, a extended connection up to there. So all of the the information from Friesland, of course, stood out very, very much for me um, because of that connection. I didn't really, I was really particularly looking for, okay, what was in the, the Rotterdam area or in the south? And there's there's very few, but I wanted to keep track of all of those. Uh, but it was very interesting, the variety from across the lowland, the low country area there is, and how much really there's a lot along from the German borders uh, area. So yeah. I, uh, very interesting yeah i think that's true and i think you can also see in that material that you know the material in the east of the country which borders uh, germany you can see that that is formed because that's not on the coast you know unless you're at, in Groningen at the very top where the modern sea island the islands are but essentially the material from there is much more like land-based and you have these big boulders you know that uh, you know we have the hunebedden mm-hmm. we can talk about that later but it kind of like what you call passage graves and standing stones. And then more the part of the Netherlands where I am from, and I am from West Friesland, from an area about an hour north of Amsterdam, sort of near, you know, Alkmaar and Hoorn. Alkmaar is the famous cheese city. 
Mm-hmm. And um, there it's all because that's re- re- land reclaimed from water. So it's water, land that is below sea level and it's only the dikes that are, you know, holding the water back. And there is a completely different flavor to the material that's from that part of the country. So you could almost sort of see where the dividing line goes between land that's below sea level and land that is like higher up and more secure. That's a very interesting uh, concept you you mentioned there. I hadn't thought about the land that's that's claimed from below sea level because really it belong that used to belong to the sea. It would be this under the water, and how 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 it might be different than just land that's like in the tall mountains uh, or that's not even near a lot of water. Oh, very interesting. Mm, yeah, it sort of expresses itself in the spirits of place and, and in, you know the yeah the, the spirits of the land and the deities also reflect that. I know we'll hopefully talk about Nehalenia later, but you know there is a different flavor to the deities from that part of the low countries compared to the parts that are away from the coast. Yes, we will definitely be talking about Nehalenia because I could never do a podcast with a Dutch person and not bring up Nehalenia. <laughs> I'm up for it. <laughs> I found uh, out about Nehalenia not, oh, well, maybe 15 years ago from my good friend Birgit, who uh, she's from Germany, but she lived in the Netherlands for a while. So she has a really nice connection to both. And she introduced me to Nehalenia and I was very interested in Nihalenia and I've been very pleased to have a, a nice relationship with her and and of course um, there's not a lot written about her but there is a little bit more and a few years ago I found an oracle deck for uh, somebody made up for her which is a beautiful deck and then I discovered a, a writer named uh, Garden Stone or um, yeah he, yeah he goes by his uh, author name now Kunavoris Hus. And uh, he wrote a book about Nihalenia, but he is not translating it into English. So that is one Dutch book that I oh, am really? working through and translating into myself. Oh, wow. That's uh, quite an undertaking. I admire you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, I understand uh, most of the Dutch. I just have to go in and uh, make the adjustments for the words that I don't know or the concepts. But it's a wonderful yeah, right. book. And, uh, he has it also in German, so anyone who can speak fluent German, you can have the book in either English or uh, Dutch or German. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of the ways that, like, the further east that we move from the coast, people are more land-based, and the, the deities and the, the local spirits are, are more rooted in the, <laughs> rooted in, in, in the land aspect of it. For people like myself who live thousands of miles away from the Netherlands, and I don't have a direct connection to the land there, because of that, how do you find that this book could be valuable to people outside of the Netherlands to connect to those Dutch heritage? And then how can we import that to our local lands? I think that's a good question. It's also a very big question. I think (laughs) the first thing I would say is that in my experience, those deities are extremely happy to travel because yes, they're local to the land, but they also exist in the other world. And the other world is a more sort of, you know, liminal kind of energetic place where everything is about like vibration and frequency. So from my point of view, just by calling them in and using an intention, they will come wherever you are. Like you don't need to be in the Netherlands to have a dialogue with Nehalenia, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you can do 
using, you know, spiritual or shamanic techniques is you can mind travel. You can set an intention to dream your way to the Netherlands or, you know, you might play sort of music or some people like drumming tracks or whatever, and you can move your consciousness to the Netherlands while your body stays uh, wherever it is. You know, you could call that soul travel. And, uh, and that's another thing I really worked with students on during lockdowns. You know, the fact that we are in lockdown and can't even leave our own house doesn't mean that our soul cannot still travel and visit other places in the world. So I would say that, you know, these means of um, connecting deities and spirits and, and places are like open to anyone who's willing to spend a little bit of time mastering the skill. It's not very difficult. And then I think the next layer of question, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, would be, okay, once I have made contact and I'm in dialogue with these spirits of the land or deities or whoever I'm contacting, you know, like how do I bring that into a life that is set in a different location? And there I would say that there is no prescribed way of doing that, especially for the Netherlands, because the material has been, uh, you know, like below the water for so long. And it's only a quite recent thing that people are rediscovering that and that, you know, more people are working with that. And, you know, you can, of course, run Google searches and some people write interesting blogs. Even people in the Netherlands will sometimes write blogs in English. So some of that material is accessible. Some of it is in Dutch, not so accessible. But I would say that where there is, an, where there is a will, there is a way. And I think there is always a way of, I mean, you could say if you wanted to work in the Helenia, to use her as an example, nothing would stop you from building a small altar to her. Or, you know, I don't know, like you might live by the sea and other people may not, but she's a goddess of water. You could go to your nearest body of water. You know, even if that is just a very small body of water near a desert, you could still sort of, you know, go to a, your nearest body of water, whatever that is, and then sort of, you know, you know, set an intention to connect with Neolenia and, and meditate on what does it mean that she's a, a goddess so closely connected to water. That work doesn't need to be done in the Netherlands. Great if you have the privilege of doing it in the Netherlands, but it doesn't need to be done in the Netherlands. You may even gain additional insights from being in a different location. And as more people work with the material in this book, and I hope lots of people actually do the homework exercise, as I said, and also invited people to stay in touch. And I have this idea of building an archive of, you know, like a place where information people gather from all over the world can sort of be put together. So everyone has access to it in English. That's one of my visions. You know, it may even be that what we know about Nehalenia really expands, or in other words, that the, the her multidimensionality, that the sort of range of... Uh, meanings and significations she has will expand because people are working with her in different locations and for Nehalenia that might be a way that she wishes to evolve because that's the way I see the relationship with the gods human beings evolve through the relationship of gods but I see those same gods as evolving the whole time through relationship with human beings so it's never static and both need each other in, in my view. I really agree with that, and I appreciate the the way that you describe that uh, traveling through the other world. We're all connected through the other world in some way. We have that access. That's such a great way to express that, and and yes, to to connect that. I've I am uh, aware of being able to to travel and connect that way. I always just kind of felt that perhaps certain beings were just so connected to a certain land space that perhaps I couldn't access them, but 
I love that uh, you, how you mentioned the way we can do that. We can work with them if they choose and uh, to uh, be able to, to, to connect with that uh, in that way. That's, that's a great, that's a great experience. Great. Yeah. Experience. I would also add that, you know, as I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm a teacher primarily. I do a lot of teaching and, you know, I have a lot of people from all over the world in my classes, which is a very interesting experience that enriches my life. But I find that a lot of my students report that, for instance, deities from other like pantheons or places will appear in their dreams and they have not asked for that. They are not looking for it. And yet a deity from a completely different time or something or a completely different location will still appear. And then sometimes people have to do research to match up what they learn in the dream to like, does such a deity actually exist? And it takes them all the way to Japan or China. So uh, it's not only that like our intention connects us to deities. It also seems to be the case that deities are sort of, you know, looking for people they may like to work with. So I think the whole thing is more fluid and dynamic uh, than it's sometimes portrayed. Mm -hmm. And and, um, there's a lot of ways that people can, if they're not comfortable or they're not quite sure how to move about or gain the other world, uh, of course, they can work with you or there are other books on traveling the other world and those opportunities and developing that practice. And it is, it does take a, a consistent practice, doesn't it? To uh, traverse the- Well, it's like anything. It's like playing a musical instrument that, you know, it, you know, it will go better, you know, if you make a regular practice of it. And, you know, you can play the piano and enjoy that without being a professional pianist. It can all be done on different levels, but even a little bit of commitment and competence will bring you the joy of, you know, the music sounding better. And I think that's the same with other world navigation. If you do it regularly and like you make notes and you take it seriously, I think you'll soon find you become more confident and, and ready to take on new challenges. Yeah. Well, we've talked about how to get to them and how to create that. And I do live near the water, so it's it's really great. I've done a lot of work with Nihalenia here. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, when you were speaking about how the beings could be worked with in a local area as well, like for me or anyone else who's listening and reading the book. The the people and the of the of the lowlands areas, they're used to traversing and traveling a lot, aren't they? Especially by the water. Oh yeah, they were seafarers, you know, they traveled long distances. And of course we know that about the Vikings as well. They traveled really far. But oh yeah, absolutely. The Dutch people have never stayed at home. They've always traveled and interacted with other people and, you know, traveled quite far. So that's very much part of the Dutch spirit. So it was never an insular society. Yeah, so I think the uh, the Dutch, the indigenous gods and goddesses and beings would probably love to be uh, have an opportunity to travel somewhere else, wouldn't they? Perhaps. <laughs> My impression is that they quite enjoy it, like what I see of it and what I hear from students, definitely. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those indigenous deities. Uh, you have uh, some r- really lengthy lists, which I just had no idea about all of the opportunities to meet different beings. And so I was really excited. And this is one that that was a chapter. Well, there was two chapters. There's the one with the Matrone and then with the indigenous beings. And I was like, oh, I want to mark here. I want to mark there. And and I didn't, um, but I'm going to because I have permission to do that with a pen. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) So uh, how that must have been really, I I would say, complicated, but uh, there must have been just a lot of work to find all of these because some of them it's just a marking on a stone or 
or a story somewhere and that must not be very easy because it's not like there's a lot of books that co collect all of this well one... there are some people who work on this so you'll actually find through you know um, blogs online where people have started but i suppose one advantage i have as a dutch person who went through the dutch you know school system dutch grammar school is that i left secondary school speaking uh, six languages and i've just continued learning more languages as life went on because i love doing it and i just found that you know I think for the research for this book, I think I was reading, and also I read PhD papers and, you know, like whatever I could lay my hands on, I read very widely. And I was reading, and I think between eight, eight and 10 languages. And then when you can do that, I, I very often find, and I know I'm very lucky to have that, that what I cannot find in one language, I just run a search in another language. And if that doesn't work, I run a search in another language. And, you know, if you sort of work that way and you collect the information from eight or ten languages, then, you know, a picture definitely starts forming. I know that's not that that's gardening writing. That's not the most orthodox way of doing research, I guess. But that's the way I do it. Wow. That just makes me appreciate this book even more. And thank you so much. So one of the, I, I went through um, in my preparations for here I went through the uh, chapter or of the gods and goddesses and just started marking some down and I, I marked a couple that I thought would be interesting for us to maybe talk a little bit about and one of the things that I would like to ask your how you think about we can do this is so since a lot of these beings do not have a lot they don't mm. have stories written about them they don't have anything preserved like we have from snorri when he preserved those those stories for the eddas or yeah. some of the other sagas uh, we just have a name or something and the dutch people haven't preserved a lot of that and some of the the things might be caught up in traditional practices or things that but nobody knows why as you mentioned earlier what are some ways that you think someone might be able to connect with that particular being for whatever interest? Suppose I just like the name and I'm like, oh, that interests me. Well, uh, and that's also why I included them. I think my, my publisher or my editor had some questions about having quite so many names, but I thought, no, 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 no. I want to throw it out there and, you know, like these beings want to be in a relationship with us. And I personally very much believe in the principle of uh, direct communication. And I also believe that, you know, I, I, I think it's almost a good thing that not everything was preserved. And I think a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this one. But I think if we had received either in Scandinavia or in the Netherlands, a complete pantheon with all the answers, things could have become quite dogmatic that this is the way it is and it cannot be done any other way. You see that in parts of the world where they have very, very um, delineated spiritual teachings. And in some sense, it can be hard to bring that into modern times. So for good or for bad, we don't have that for the Netherlands or for Scandinavia. And I would say use these techniques we were just talking about a moment ago. Like for me, the best way to learn about the deity is through direct relationship and devotional work. So for instance, when... I was working with Badu Henna, and I was actually, that was the summer where I was in Sweden, so I wasn't even in the Netherlands, she's a Frisian goddess. I was working on my own Swedish land in the forest, and just for a week I set an intention that everything that happened that week in some way or form would tell me about Badu Henna, and I just sort of kept my intention 
um, on her for a week. But then also the birds in the forest sort of started behaving in a certain way and the ravens came and took me on a walk. And, you know, even the sort of, you know, the mushrooms in the forest had messages because this was like August time. And I sort of realized that I had learned so much about Barihena by the end of that week. And it was simply by setting an intention, by saying I'm open to communication. I also had very rich dreams that week. So I was keeping a dream diary and Barihena would come in, in lots of different ways. And I really started to understand her as a kind of uh, a corvid, a predator mother who sits on the very edge between life and death, the way predators do. And, you know, her main teaching to me, which probably doesn't sound very comfortable, was that, you know, that in return for the gift of life that I have received and, you know, other beings, even plants, I'm a vegetarian, die so I can eat and live. But that one day I have to die and like the components that make up my body have to become food for other organisms and beings. That was actually her main teaching. That may not be a comfortable teaching, but... In that moment, I felt that got to the heart of Baduhena, and that, you know, for the privilege of living under her wing and having her protection, I also had to understand that very basic fact that I had to, like, die one day and become part of the food cycle. And that's not something you're going to read about Baduhena in a, a listing or in a sort of, you know, snorry. It's not going to say that or the Dutch authors are not going to say that. But I still felt through really working with her intensely for a week, I arrived at something that was uncomfortable maybe, but also on another level rang very true and was also comforting in another way. Ooh, that's, that's some really uh, interesting things about Baduhena. She's reading her uh, in the book. I kind of got a little bit of an interest in her and I thought I had heard her mentioned, but I wasn't sure. But saying that she was connected to the Netherlands was very exciting. And I guess I'm kind of glad that we don't have a lot of strict stories or things on, on most of these. So we have that flexibility and that freedom to introduce ourselves to them and learn about them. That's really neat. Yeah. And I think they enjoy that as well. Because I said, I always, you know, whatever being I work with, strength, I sense that very strong sense of them wanting to evolve. And as I said that, you know, there is a rune we call Kifu in, uh, it's the old Norse word, or some people say Kibo or Kibo. Um, which is the rune of the gift, and it looks like a cross. But essentially that rune emphasizes that, you know, every an interaction is an exchange. You cannot have an interaction with another being without there being an exchange. But an exchange always like works both ways. Like both of you will be touched or changed by the encounter. Both of you will invest something in it and take something away from it. And that's how I see the work with the, the deities as well. And they may be much bigger and more timeless than we are, but at the end of the day, what happens there is an exchange. Yeah, one of the ones that stood out to me before I finished uh, reading and finding out that you and your students work with her a lot is um, Arduina or Arduina. Arduina, yeah. Arduina. Yeah, tell us a little bit about her. Uh, well, she is related. You know, you could say that she um, is from Belgium not technically speaking the Netherlands, because in Belgium you have the what we call the Ardennen in Dutch, I think the Ardennes in French or in other languages. So it's like a different kind of landscape. It's not near the water. It's more more foresty. And she's very much a forest goddess. You know, she is related to um, the animals of the forest. And uh, she has a connection to trees. So, again, talking about geography, 
that's very different from the sort of deities you find on the Dutch coast or even on the Belgian coast. She's very much related to that part of the world and, you know, the animals you find there. And, you know, it's more, it's the woodland, it's the, the beings of the forest. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I just brought her up because I, I come from an area uh, in the States where we did have forests and I, it was borderline, actually, it was desert and we had the tall mountains with forests. So, I often feel a connection there too. So perhaps that's why she made an impression just in that little bit as well. Even though I live now next to the water and we will get to Nihilinium because uh, I wanted to <laughs> bring up um, the goddess Tanfana. And uh, yes. it's interesting that you brought up Tanfana, or, but Hus in his book about the Vitavivan, he mentioned a story about um, Tanfana. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I've never heard of a actual named goddess other than the Hellenia. <laughs> so right. uh, mm. that's very, very neat to uh, to learn about Tanfana. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see if she is waking up some people and, and becoming a little bit more noticeable to folks. Well, that's, I mean, I definitely have that impression. There is also um, a woman I'm indebted to in the Netherlands called Ineke Bergman. And she wrote a book in Dutch, it is Godinnen van Eigen Bodem. It means the goddesses of our own ground, of our own earth or soil. And Tonfana is one of the goddesses she features in that book. And uh, that was my starting point. I you know, then found more information, but that book happened to be my starting point. And that book, from what I understood, was very much written from an invitation from the deities that they want to be more in consciousness again. They want to dance with us again. They want to communicate with us again. And, you know, then sort of doing more research, she realized that she's been sort of appearing to other people as well. So I definitely feel there is a bit there from these deities to say the times they are changing. There is more space in the general consciousness again for people to engage with these deities. And especially sort of in the Netherlands, it's quite a secular society. So the grip of, you know, for like many centuries, Christianity really was like the dominant, well, religion and spiritual orientation. And that grip, you know, at least of the church, you know, is loosening. And it does seem to be creating a space where, you know, other ways of being and other ways of relating to the other world and other spiritual beliefs can take up more space in consciousness. People are more open-minded. Um, so, yeah, I think we live, from that point of view, we live in very exciting times. But really, she is in Twente, in Twente, which is a province of the Netherlands or an area. Actually, it's an area in the Netherlands, not a province. Uh, again, where there is more woodland and not, not so much water, and it's on the German border. And to me, she is very much um, a psychopomp, like a soul conductor. She's like um, a goddess of death, really, you know, who like, you know, yeah. works with dead people and receives dead people and helps to make them tr the transition from this world into another world. So... I don't primarily see her as a goddess of water. I see her as um, a great psychopomp, a soul conductor, a kind of deaf goddess, who also has a, you know, has a bit of a connection to children, I would say, the way Frau Holle does. Wow. Well, let's do talk about a goddess that we both know is connected to water, Nihilenia. And uh, I'm sure my listeners are, are, they know that I'm very fond of, of Nihilenia and I enjoy working with her. Yeah, good. And I've been to her temple in uh, Kulainsblad. You've uh, been there? Oh, exciting. I still want to go. I haven't made it there yet. Uh, it's a lovely little thing, and it's right on the harbor, and there's a bunch of little little ships 
right next to it and uh, surrounded by a beautiful rose hedge and uh, people are leaving gifts all the time oh. to this little okay. uh, little temple building that was built that was a restored temple from uh, her practice in like the first or second centuries before it was covered by the sea the sea claimed back the land <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and then uh, the story of course as you relate and we know uh, many of us know is that the votive stones were pulled up by fishers in uh, the 1700s and that's how yeah. we came to uh, know of quite a vibrant practice for her at that time yeah exactly and i found it and i write that in the book i found it extraordinary like you, you asked about doing research for this book and you know for you know i went to school i did all my schooling in the netherlands i did all of primary school secondary school in the netherlands i sat through like that's probably all together um 12 years of like history lessons and it was all about like wars and the dates of you know people invading other countries and all of it and all of it and it's only when I started doing the research for this book, I find this story about, you know, Colleinsplatz on the island of Walcheren in the province of Zeeland. And that kale force winds sort of exposed these 28 altar stones. And then the fishermen, as you say, pulled them out of the sea. And actually what they're dealing with is like a temple of a very ancient goddess sort of rising from the seabed. Hmm. And it's like, why was I never taught that in history lessons? Those history lessons would have really caught my attention if I had been taught that. Instead, I was forced to, you know, to learn about war the whole time. So it was really, really strange. It's like, you know, after all of these history lessons, what was I learning in those lessons? I, mean, I didn't learn any of the things described in this book. So that was a very strange disconnect. Like what is on the curriculum for the subject of history in the Netherlands that they don't like tell people the really interesting things, like from my point of view anyway. Which is surprising because I, th I thought that that would be something very interesting for school children and uh, later education to learn uh, because it's such a vibrant part of the history and such an interesting and unique part of history. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful story, but I think it's probably too heathen. I mean, you know, I, I don't know anyone who learned about that in history lessons in, in Dutch school. I really don't think they teach it. Yeah, but it is wonderful that the stones and the altars are now in the um, uh, the Rijksmuseum in Leiden. Uh, oh, so, okay, is that where they are? Right. Yes, yes, yes. There's the the antiquity. It's in English. It's the Antiquities Museum of of the Rijksmuseum, and it's in Leiden. And they have an entire the entire top floor of that that level of the uh, museum is dedicated to ancient Dutch history, and there's a big oh. room filled with all of the stones. And the giant statue of Nihalenia, which is really oh cool. wow, I need to go here. <laughs> yeah. Next time you're in the Netherlands, hopefully Next you can. Next time I'm in the Netherlands, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, and I've uh, been enjoying working with Nihalenia. I found she's a very approachable goddess, and I think she really wants to be connected mm. to people, especially those who are probably living near the sea or do a lot of travel. I think um, to me, she's revealed herself as any kind of travel, not just by the sea. That mm. she very connected to and uh, so I really appreciate that with with her yeah and I, yeah I, I feel she's very friendly she's very approachable she's not like formidable or you know off-putting yeah well uh, so we are recording this um, near the end of November and coming up is the season of and you mentioned uh, this in in the book of course is the wild hunt Frau Holla 
and of course Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas, yes. yes. Sinterklaas. <laughs> I have my letter, uh, my chocolate letter, and my uh, crowd noten already, and uh, uh, I'm in preparations for Sinterklaas. Now, Sinterklaas is a tradition that we have had ever since I was a little a little one, but I never really connected it to the wild hunt. Now, the wild hunt is very popular through the Norse uh, traditions and practices, and a lot of people are very excited to talk about that. How do you view the the wild hunt and uh, Frau Hola's um, participation in the Netherlands and as part of a, a reinvigorating a, a Dutch-connected practice? Yes, I would say that both uh, Frau Holle and, of course, Wodan Odin and um, let's see, who else are we talking about? Sinterklaas, Sint Nicolaas, you know, have been linked to the wild hunt, the wilde jacht uh, in, in, in Dutch. And what that really represents is that we are soon entering the December month. And that's also, you know, it's the time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, in that part of the world where you get the autumn storms and you get the bad weather and then we're going to go into the winter solstice and, you know, the new year period. So you could sort of say that we're approaching the time of year where a year is dying and another year is going to be born and the sun is sort of, you know, low in the sky and mm-hmm. then the sun will start rising again. And that is seen as a time of a thin veil. So that the uh, boundary between our world and the other world is not so solid. So that would start at what's commonly called like, you know, Halloween or Samhain or, you know, in uh, Old Norse, you know, we celebrate the Alpha blot. So it's like that time of year where the veil starts thinning. But then also what happens, and I think it's very important that we sort of rediscover that, is that the people in the old days saw that as a time of year where the great psychopoms would sort of travel across the land. And the wilde jacht or the wild hunt has different leaders in different locations. So it depends on where you are in the larger area, how that is perceived. But all these figures we just mentioned are connected to it. And the general idea is that at that time of year where the veil between the world worlds is thin, that a wild hunt would ride out and that they would scoop up the souls of people who have died that year, but who have not made a full transition into the other world. So like they would be deceased, but because they haven't made a full transition, they're still hanging, hanging in the energetic space between the worlds. That's not a good place for them to be, and it's not good for the living when they do so. So the wild, the wild, the yacht, the wild hunt, is this phenomenon where a kind of divine or powerful leader with a whole, you know, a consort, a whole group of other beings, you know, sweeps. And they're not like high up in the sky. They actually move quite low to the ground. And then, you know, they sweep up uh, those souls and they sort of clear the, um, you know, the ethereal space or the airways. But there's a whole other dimension to that because it's also about clearing the space of, old energetic manifestations, so old plans, old thought forms, you know, things that have been tried and failed or things that, you know, people were like trying to do and that didn't work out. Like, you know, we all put a lot of energy into the eaters and like politicians put a lot of noise into the eaters and like there's always a lot going on in the human world. And so what is also happening there, as well as this sort of collecting, which is a compassionate act, the souls of the dead, and helping them make a full transition to the other world, to their correct destination in the afterlife, however you perceive that. It's also a kind of gathering of uh, loose energies, uh, you know, of 
old thought forms of anything that doesn't belong anymore and completely clearing the space so a new year can be born and it can you know start in the right way and the thing that always astonishes me is that we keep sort of voting for new politicians i always think that the new whatever prime minister or president you know is going to do a more brilliant job than the one before that but i never see anyone who's in the world of politics uh, understanding that to actually give a new prime minister or a new politician or a new mr president or mrs president the chance to do well we would have to like unravel and clear all of the energetic manifestations that uh, were created by their predecessor. So in a way, we're kind of setting them up for failure, the way I view it. I would never want to have that job. I mean, does that make sense? Yes, that does. That definitely makes sense. And I think that uh, I appreciate you explaining that a little bit. And that's a really interesting concept about uh, the, the world leaders as they come in and very interesting connections there. They're standing in a place where they're so enmeshed in old intentions and old creations that they literally don't stand much of a chance. And then we blame them and we demonize them. I sometimes feel sorry for these people, you know, no no matter what side of the spectrum they're on, where I think, you know, that's really a job where, you know, failure is almost wired in unless we start looking at the energetic and spiritual ramifications of what goes on. But anyway, I'm not a politician, so enough about that. What we can sort of say is that these different beings you name, so St. Nicholas is connected to the wild hunt, is that, you know, Odin, Wodan is, uh, Frau Holle is, I don't know about Tanfana, I've not heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me if she, she was connected to that as a deaf goddess. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there, there used to be a lot going on there. And then, of course, with the Christianization of the Netherlands, you know, uh, I'm not saying that the wild hunt wouldn't write, but currently uh, um, groups of people are like rediscovering this and the importance of this. And I do wild hunt ceremonies with my own students. And I know that other people do this work as well. So there's a kind of revival of these practices. And I think that that is very, very important because, to, you know, like you won't, wouldn't want to live in a house you never clean. So why would you want to live in a world where we have lost the art of doing our, you know, energetic winter cleaning or spring cleaning? That's a good connection there. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk about a favorite subject of mine. And you include a small, a small chapter, but I know you're working on other aspects of it. But the, the runes, how, the runes. how important to... The practice, do you find the runes? And you are um, connected to the Frisian rune row. And uh, just a bit of a confession, I have not developed a strong connection to the Frisian rune rows. Um, I kind of focus on the, the elder, but because of your book, I'm going to do a little bit more connection. Well, then I think you're going to have a very exciting journey because to go from the um, the Elder Futhark to the Frisian Futhark, you need to learn eight more rooms. So, and that's quite exciting to learn new rooms. I and think it would be uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon one would be, you know, it would be nine for the Northumberland. Uh, you know, there's three: the Anglo-Saxon, Northumberland, and then the Frisian Futhark. Thirty-three or thirty-two rooms. So, with the Frisian. Uh, do you find that there that it's a very strong connection to the low countries through that runes? Well, I mean, I was working, in truth, I also started with the runes of the Elder Futhark. So most of the time when I teach an introduction to the runes, or, you know, I, I have rune magician students. I'm currently writing a book about, a book, a handbook for rune magicians, uh, because my students have asked for that. 
And for me, that all started with the Elder Youth Arc in Scandinavia. And I wasn't even you know, aware at that time, this was decades ago, of the Frisian runes. But then also, at some point, that started coming to intention when I was creating more advanced material for my students. And I started researching other rune rows because people often think, well, there's the Elder Youth Arc, and that is it, and that is 24 runes. But mm-hmm. now in reality, there are many rune rows and you have like local variants as well. And these rune rows shift over time, you know, they're not static. They don't stay the same like over time. Also, you know, the pronunciation of languages changes and sort of, you know, all sorts of things go on. So I became aware of the Frisian rune row and I thought, well, I am best Frisian. And also was becoming more aware of the need to work with ancestral material uh, you know, like where possible, that being a really good option. So I started working with the Frisian rune row and, and, you know, learning the additional runes. You need to learn to do that. Also learning how certain runes shift over time and just working with that. And I'll just point out that in my book, North Sea Water, I actually include a rune summary, which I've written from a low country's point of view. I've made sure that all the references that I provide and the examples are all taken from the low countries and not from somewhere else, which sits at the very back of the book. I, I appreciate that too. That's what's uh, really got me interested and inspired me. So um, you have been able to inspire me to move and expand my rooms. <laughs> so I'm really looking well, That's really good. Yeah. Because, you know, I was actually running an Instagram post yesterday because so many people who are into the whole Viking revival or reconstruction stuff, they head straight for the rooms of the Elder Futhark. But let me just say that, you know, the Vikings never used the runes of the Elder Futhark. It's actually from an earlier period in Old Norse history. The Vikings used the runes of the younger Futhark, not the elder one. And actually there are like people out there, you know, who like whatever have their tattoos or bind runes, and it's all being done in the runes of the elder Futhark. So it's a very common misperception. You think Old Norse elder Futhark, but actually the elder Futhark is from an earlier time and the Vikings... And then, of course, you know, the, a lot of the runes are the same. So I'm not saying it is all wrong, but a lot of people seem to assume that the Vikings used the runes of the Elder Futhark, and they didn't. Yeah. Well, as we uh, were, we've been talking for a long time, actually, and it's been wonderful. Some other, uh, we can go into some other aspects of the, the book here that people can definitely check out, which is, do you have a chapter about the landscapes? of uh, the Netherlands that people can connect with, which uh, was really neat, especially the ones that I had visited, I found quite mm. And uh, you do have a nice section talking about ceremonies and uh, ritual practices, and then your your calendar, your year of practice, how that works and, and how we can connect some of those. So that's also very helpful. And of course, the homework. This is a book with homework. <laughs> All my books have homework. Well, you know, I find, I think that's very good. It's not complicated homework, and it's very uh, introspective and very much going on uh, your own intuition and your own journey. So yeah, uh, it's deepening homework. What I'm trying to do is invite people to have a more kind of you know practical, direct experience of what I'm writing about. And again, it got you know it got questioned by my editor. He thought it could just sort of delete all the homework exercises, and I took a battle and I said, no, 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 like the homework is staying in, but. The thing is, by teacher, or so by profession, I'm a teacher. Like most of my time is spent on, on teaching. And I know very well that if I just stand up and give a lecture, as I do sometimes, the audience will find that really interesting. They'll go home, but they will not really start working with it. You may have the one individual who pulls that off. 
So what I've learned from teaching is that if you want people to truly engage with material, you need to break it up into smaller exercises and you need to get very, very practical. You need to lead people into a place where they have a direct experience and then they're far more likely to return and continue working or something. And if you do not do that, you can write as many books as you like, but people will read the book and forget most of it. So that's like me thinking as a teacher. And even the feedback I've had now, even with homework in the book, a lot of people have messaged me or emailed me and said, well, Emel, that's all very interesting, but it's too much to absorb. When are you going to start teaching a course where you actually lead people through working with the material? And that's something I'm trying to scale you for um, sometime next year, 2023, like a whole series of classes about the pre-Christian spirituality of the Netherlands. And then like take people through that. Like, how do you do that? People then will be in a class with others or they can hear others share how they caught on so you know then the whole thing becomes a lot more real than just sitting at home and reading a book and then closing the book and walking away i agree with you and i'm looking forward to that workshop now i will let you know when i've got it organized it's still uh, uh, in the works uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on about uh, the practice of the netherlands or the low countries and bringing that into a, a modern context, especially for people who are just of interest or of Dutch heritage or about the book? I think that goes back to something I already said, I think, but I think for me, uh, I feel a very strong request from the deities and the spirits of the land that they want to be in consciousness again. And also people who do that work and are in connection with deities and spirits of the land are not going to make decisions that harm the land. So I think there's also an Environment, environmental sort of um, dimension to that, that people who live and work that way, you know, I, I personally think that um, the spirits of the land should have a voice in, you know, like political and local decisions we make, but we're still very, very far from that. It's happened in New Zealand where they gave a, a river a voice, they have like a shaman speaking for a river, so the river could like voice an opinion about decisions made about the land. And I hope that we're all sort of, you know, moving in that direction. But another thing is that I know it can be to work with material all on your own, especially if it's dense material, or material that's a bit obscure, or there are a lot of like difficult Dutch words involved. Uh, I find people get so much more out of the material when they connect with others. I've also said already earlier in the podcast that I'm a great believer in um, exchange and in direct relationship. So from my point of view, that the experiences of anyone who works with the material in this book would be interesting to me, even if it's very different from what the received wisdom is about a deity. So my larger vision would be, and I'm still sort of thinking about how I might do that and also, you know, finding the time to do it all, like giving it a dedicated body of time, but to create some kind of place where people can come together or some kind of, I've called it like an online archive. It could even be a, a Facebook group, which I think I've already created, but, you know, I haven't visited for a while, which is not good. But like a place where people who all have the same interests can have like discussions, share links, say, well, I was talking to Nehalenia today and she said this, or I came across an obscure uh, reference, you know, and it was that. And where all that material is like put together and then you could have threads that have like, you could have search for keywords, so people arriving in the group could like search for the topic that, you know, they want to find material on. And I think probably um, a closed Facebook group is the best way of doing that or the easiest, most accessible way of doing that. And that's why I would like to cover it because otherwise I think I've written an, an interesting book 
But I don't know for how long people will stay engaged with the book if there are not places where they can go and, and talk to others and share ideas and, you know, like keep on working in a supported kind of way. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to some of that. I'd love to be a part of that. And I'm sure many other people will too. Well, they can drop me a line. Then I'll contact them when I get it organized. No promises exactly when that will be. Yeah, but, you know, of I course. Take expressions of interest for all my projects. And then at some point, when I get something organized, I write to all the people who've expressed interest in that thing. They get like a dedicated email from me. Well, tell us a little bit about how we can find you on the web. Okay, well, you can find me. I have a website. The easiest way to find me is just to type in my name. And the thing that will come up is my website. And it's actually www.shaman-healer painter.co.uk and I made that website many many years ago and today I would give it a completely different name but there it is that's what I created my younger self I also have an online school called Pregnant Hack Teachings uh, hosted by Teachable so if you type in Pregnant Hack Teachings that should take you to my school and I have a very large you know I have uh, classes for rune magicians I have Seder classes on there there will be a series of classes about the uh, spirituality of the Netherlands appearing on there. Still working on that. So that's another good one. Um, I have a YouTube channel as well where I have art videos and interviews with people. Uh, that's called uh, the Pregnant Hack podcast, actually. And uh, yes, then I have other books I have written. Uh, the first book was called Natural Born Shamans, and that's all about spiritual toolkit work with children. And I have a free workshop in my school, actually, uh, which is like the pandemic chapter, because I wrote the book long before the pandemic, you know, sort of a spiritual toolkit for children and and families and and young people, you know, how to navigate uh, times of of a pandemic. And also, you know, we have a war here in Europe and that affects a lot of young people. So a kind of spiritual toolkit for navigating those kinds of turbulent times. So that's Natural Born Shamans. My second book was about um, sacred art. You know, explaining what the underlying principles are in sacred art and how sacred art uh, is different from like contemporary art or modern art, and really giving people permission again to work in that way, in a spirit led way that puts spirit and divinity at the heart of things. And that's a book I still get a lot of emails about as well, because there are a lot of people who go through the mainstream art teaching system and they become very disillusioned or they receive a lot of negative feedback because they want to make spiritual art. And that's one of the remaining taboos in the art world, making spiritual art. It's kind of like to a colleague, I called it the final frontier recently. It's sort of funny that it's all about, you know, we're trying to break every taboo in art, but there's actually a taboo left. And that's the taboo of making spiritual art. So that's what sacred art is all about. And my third book is called uh, Medicine of the Imagination, which is really an exploration of where the human imagination touches the world of spirit and how it is our like main tool, both in shaping reality, but also in accessing the spirit world. And there's also quite a lot in that book looks at like shadow work and what the nature is of like evil and why human beings commit crimes. Uh, I suppose it's my darkest book. There is some really dark material in there, but really looking at, you know, how if we want to create a better world, we have to learn how to harness the powers of our imagination in a completely different way. And we have to be much more conscious of the energy, you know, we send out in the world and what we energetically create. And then, you know, the fourth nonfiction book, um, you know, is the one we're discussing here. And then I have the books for children, the Green Bear books, and you gave them a very warm mention already. Thank you. 
I'll have links to your to your websites as well in the show notes so people will be able to find you um, easily. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me and our listeners. Well, thank you. And also thank you for arriving so well prepared. So it was lovely to talk to someone who's really read the book properly. So thank you so much, John. Thank you for listening. Please have a look at the show notes for links and, well, notes. Podcast is available from Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and other podcast catchers. Feedback and reviews are greatly appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at weirdgifts1 and on Facebook at at giftsoftheweird and email me at giftsoftheweird.com. Thanks and have a great day.